Good morning, everybody. I am zipped up this morning because the first thing I did when I got here was spill a cup of coffee on my shirt. I will show you. It goes all the way down. So I'm, I thought this gave a particularly nice look. It kind of looks like the material is supposed to be like this, and it's kind of fashionable. Jesus, still our hearts this morning. Help us to be present to you, to ourselves. Speak to us, God. Amen. Well, we have a questionnaire. And you can just kind of scroll through it. You don't have to write it down anywhere, but it's basically, I am male, female, other, I am white, non-white, I am cisgendered, not cisgendered, I'm an oldest child or an only child, a middle child, a youngest child, I was born into a majority religion, a minority religion, other, my job or my vocation or how I spend my days. A is a vacation with a lot of culturally derived status. B with some culturally derived status. C with little culturally derived status. And she'll show those still for a little while. And obviously I could have nuanced um, each category much more, and we could have added more categories, right? We could have had able-bodied, sound, mind, economic strata. And clearly in the way that I designed it, the more A's one has in my survey, survey the more um, privileges that one enjoys. And on the other hand, the less A's that you have, likely the more discrimination or microaggressions or obstacles you would likely experience. So obviously today there's a lot written about privilege and white supremacy and gender and sexuality. Um, but I wanted to take a moment briefly just to place ourselves where we might enjoy some privilege, where we might suffer under the burden of societal preferences. So Tom and I have been married now for 33 years, is that right? Yes. Neither of us know, so you can't just judge me. <laughs> Lukey, how old are you? <laughs> okay, we were married in 1988. So the whole family, we can pull this together. So this is a decent amount of time, and we are, by all counts, best friends, um, lovers, ministry partners, co-parents. Now, today, great uh, pleasure, we are co-grandparents. So 30-some years in, to be decided later, um, and we still like each other a lot. That said, we have our struggles, and most of them in some way are related um, to the list that we had up there, to the questionnaire. So Tom. Tom is an oldest white 
male child. Were we living in the ancient world, Tom would be heir to his family's wealth, and his younger sibs might be planning his demise. <laughs> Tom is also cisgendered, born into America's dominant religion, and spends his days as a physician, scientist, researcher, take your pick. There's a lot of cachet there, a lot of culturally-derived status. And then there's me. Okay, I am white and cisgendered, so I clearly enjoy a lot of privilege. I'm also female. I'm a youngest child from a very minority religion. I talked to Rabbi Esther down the block um, recently, and she talks about the privilege that Christians enjoy in our country that we don't even know we enjoy, but that Jewish people are aware of all the time. And she just gave me one little example that she said, I mean, this is one of so many, but she said, um, protests always happen on the Jewish Sabbath. And she's an activist, both uh, by nature and by her religious um, convictions, and she said that means I either have to miss the protest, which I want to be at, or compromise um, my faith practice. I'm a pastor. Uh, for some, that would be meaningful, much less now than, say, 50 years ago, when our country uh, believed in church a little bit differently. I'm also a woman pastor, which means my congregation will likely be smaller, that I will likely serve in a rural community, or if I am in an urban community, I will likely be on the staff, a staff pastor of a male, white male-led um, church. So while Tom is ticking every box um, of privilege, I'm somewhere in the middle. I have enormous privilege just being white and straight, and then it falls off a little bit. Our marriage is somewhat predictable. If you had time to guess or make meaning of the different boxes, you would probably guess that Tom tends to be um, more certain of himself, of himself, he only has one, and, <laughs> and of his thoughts. In general, he assumes his thoughts are correct, even when they're not. I am quite different as a youngest. I learned to trust others' thinking as a woman. I was trained and enculturated to trust men's thinking, especially in the synagogue and the church where I was formed. Um, and of course, uh, that would have meant by both white men um, in, in the synagogue and in the church in my early years, um, both straightforward male-led institutions. Um, I was well into my 30s before I had any questions, really, about gender at all. So when Tom and I argue about something, which does happen, and I wanted to make jokes about our arguing in staff meetings and about what David has to endure, but David is off gallivanting around the world with his family right now, so I'll spare you. But when we do argue, um, Tom always assumes he's right, which makes me mad, because I think, well, there's probably a lot of different interpretations, and why do you need to be right? To which he will say, well, maybe all those gazillion different interpretations are wrong, to which I will say who died and made you king of the world, to which we both take timeouts and come back and try again. Over the years, 
I have had to learn to exercise certain muscles that did not come natural to me. And Tom has had to learn to relax some muscles that did not come natural to him. And so we work on it together in a happy marriage, but definitely, as the Proverbs writer would describe, iron sharpening iron. And of course, the more we are aware of our proclivities, the more healing we get, the better we do at it. In the 1930s, W.E.B. Du Bois labeled, that which enabled poor whites to feel superior to poor blacks as white skin privilege. The concept got popularized in the 80s by some scholars at Wellesley. So the use of the word itself, privilege, the way we use it today is a modern concept. We don't read about privilege, um, at least not using that language in the scripture, but it seems to be on the forefront of Jesus' mind. The scripture we're reading right now is in Matthew 20, starting at verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven, so when you hear the phrase kingdom of heaven, don't think just about heaven as a destination, a future place. The Bible writers think of heaven as an articulated vision of what life with Rabbi Jesus would have been like, like what the world would be like if we all submitted ourselves to Jesus' teachings. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarii for the day and sent them into the vineyard, and a denarii would have been a day's wages for a common laborer. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in the vineyard. I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. So we don't know, right, why they're doing nothing, but the fact is as soon as they were offered the job, they took it. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around, and he asked them, why have you been standing here all day and doing nothing? So here's a question that we might have swirling around. Why aren't you working? And we might have lots of answers in our heads. Because no one's hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired, and go on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a Daenerys. So when those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a Daenerys. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a Daenerys? 
take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired the last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want to do with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? A little provocative. So I have been faithfully working since seven in the morning, says laborer. My back hurts. I've been away from my family all day. The pay isn't great, but I can make it work. I work hard and I get paid for what I do. It's hardly fair that someone who comes in at the end of the day and works a crummy two hours or a crummy half hour when I'm up at dawn gets paid what I get paid, right? This is crazy. So, of course, this is a perfect story about privilege. We get no information about these workers other than when they started work at that time of day, but we can ask some questions. Is there a reason they were less employable? Has the system they were part of favored certain people, discriminated against others? What does it mean that the landowner is hiring those that others wouldn't hire? And finally, we get to the last sentence and Jesus' critique about the system. It is short and to the point and has the heck with your system kind of feel about it. So Jesus says, the last will be first and the first will be last. Essentially, Jesus is the great leveler. I'm not playing by your system, Jesus says. I am not interested in who your system privileges, Jesus says. In my economy, everyone flourishes. Everyone who wants an opportunity is afforded one. And to be fair, the laborers who have been there from the beginning are getting what was promised to them. It just doesn't seem good anymore. I was recently reading a book that asked the question, now that there are black people and brown people and women and sexual minorities being invited to the theology table, that table where you discuss the meaning of scripture and what God is saying to us through it, that table that has historically been white and male. Now that for the first time there are liberation theologies and queer theologies and feminist theologies, maybe the table itself isn't as exciting anymore. Maybe it was more exciting and more trustworthy when there was one primary demographic interpreting scripture. With all these different voices at the table, it's become a bit of a free-for-all. Who gets to decide truth now? I'm out. There was a white pastor in the South who was getting flack for saying Black Lives Matter. And he responded by saying, you say all lives matter, so when each life actually matters, I'll be happy to say all lives matter. When you care about the people who started working at the vineyard at 10 a.m. and 12 a.m p.m. and 4 p.m. and 5 p.m., then you can say all lives matter.
Before we ask what God might be saying this morning, I want to look at how this very uh, modern concept is alive in the scripture, um, in the Bible, which was written and redacted, so put together, two to 3,000 years ago at a time when gender equality was not in anybody's imagination, right? Women are property, and equality was not a value. Slavery was assumed. So I can struggle, I can wrestle with the scripture. It is an ancient text, and some of the sensibilities can be hard for modern listeners when slavery is just assumed, when women are almost always nameless. It is a book, in fact, that is written by men, about men, with men in mind as the listener. But it can be like walking in a forest that forms a canopy and sometimes blocks the sun. And every now and then you hit a place where the sun can peek through and you feel that light. In the midst of the Moses story, where a people are liberated from bondage, there are five sisters who are upset because their father died and there is no brother to inherit the estate, which makes them out of luck. This is from Numbers 27.1. The names of the daughters were Mala, Noah, Holga, Milka, and Tirzah. They came forward and they stood before Moses, the leader of the people, Eliezer the priest, the leaders, and the whole assembly at the entrance of the tent of meeting and said, so we picture these women coming in a way that's completely unheard of to this, uh, in this patriarchal system to the highest of the high male leaders. And they say, our father died in the wilderness and left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from the clan? Because he had no son. Appealing to them in ways that they might be able to hear. Give us property among our father's relatives. So five young women standing before the seat of power, Moses hears their case, goes to God, and God says, yes, change the law to protect the women. And of course, there's Deborah, who was a judge, which meant military leader in those days, which by all accounts was crazy to think of a woman doing that. But Deborah and another woman named J.L. won a battle against an enemy king and drove a peg through his head, which is a bit violent, but they did win the battle and save the day. And Rahab, the named woman who historically risked her life hiding 12 spies, getting the people of God one step closer to the land of promise. So three quick takeaways. One, it would do us all well to take time to assess our privilege, where we have it, where we don't. Make some decisions around it. If you're partnered, understand the differences in your privilege 
what you bring to the table and what it means. Talk about it. Understand how it works in your workplace, in your friendship groups, in the systems you're a part of. Number two, ask specifically what it looks like to bless the workers who came later in the day. Who are those people today? Where might we be resistant? What organizations or nonprofits are trying to build equity that we can partner with? And three, Jesus tells us this radical story, but I don't think he's suggesting an economic model. I think he's just saying, look around the models you have. Who do they work for? Who don't they? What Jesus is after is our flourishing, all of us, humanity's flourishing. Jesus says, I love you. Everything I have is yours. I give you the keys to the kingdom. I offer you nothing less, but I want that same goodness for everyone. So I'll, I'll close with this. Um, many of you will have heard um, the name Masha Amini. Masha Amini is the young Iranian woman who was killed by the morality police a couple weeks ago for not having been covered well enough. And of course, this has sparked protests um, in Iran and has turned into something of a revolution. And what was initially about women and women's rights has transformed into humanity and humanity's rights. And Masha's name has come to symbolize their fight. I heard um, an interview this week um, where an Iranian-American reporter was describing what happened in Iran. And the American interviewer asked her, like, what do you think about the potential success of this? Like, and he's essentially saying, listen, I mean, this is a country that is set up to quash uh, revolutions. Like, how, how can this possibly be successful? How can it end well? beyond lots of people being arrested, silenced, worse. And the woman who was being interviewed seemed to think that the question was a little bit silly. And she said, oh, of course the movement in the street can be stopped, but something deeper has taken root in the imagination of the people. We are no longer the same, and that cannot be stopped. Jesus told parables to plant something in our imaginations that would niggle at us over and over and over until we became the very thing that we didn't understand. Amen.
We are going to transition into a time of communion and musical worship. The worship band can come forward. Jesus, we thank you that you are um, a God of human flourishing, that when we open our imaginations up, when we dare to dream of what the kingdom of heaven would look like, we don't have to wait to get to some distant place at the end of our life. You have painted a picture for us of what the kingdom or kingdom would look like. God, stir in our hearts, wherever we are this morning, wherever we find ourselves. As we take communion, we take your life into us, believing that we are shaped and made into your goodness. believing that we become more able to enact the kingdom of heaven on earth. 